0: The following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, please visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. How are we doing tonight? We doing okay. Good. Several years ago, I was I was living in Snyder, Texas, which is in West Texas by Lubbock, Midland, Abilene, San Angelo, if you're familiar with that area and uh, we had an earthquake. It was a pretty big earthquake. We never have earthquakes in Snyder. Never. I don't remember ever having one, but it was big enough that it shook all the dishes in our cabinets and made the whole house kind of rumble a little bit, and so we went outside. I went outside. My wife went outside, and my next-door neighbor, uh, his name's Troy, and he was like a head deacon at our church and just an awesome man of God, and then two, da- two doors down was uh, another gentleman named Billy, and Billy's just kind of a mischievous older guy. Uh, he just kind of a troublemaker in, in the best. He's a nice guy. I love him to death, but he just, he just mischievous, you know? So we all three went to the lawn at the same time because we just were like, what was that? Right. And so I got out there and Troy's out there and he's again, he's the church guy. And I said, what was it? Cause I, I think that was an earthquake. And so about that time, Billy, the mischievous one comes out and he goes, well, I thought that might've been the rapture, but I see you're still here. So I guess I'm good. Right. So. <laughs> We're in part two of our two-week series called The End. It's an overview of Revelation, and I told you last week that end times conspiracy theorist David Mead, he, he comes up with these prognostications, and he thought the world would end today, April 11th, so I guess we've still got four hours. I, I did not think that because of Matthew 24:36 and some other verses, and so I wish I knew David. If I knew David, I would have bet him $100 ...that the world would not end today. And if it did not end today, he has to pay me $100 tomorrow, April 12th. And if it did end today, then he wins the bet. Because I can't, I can't pay him. Because <laughs> right? So it's a win-win for me. Just using the old noodle. Okay. So why study the end? Why are we doing this? Why are we studying the end? First of all, it's very, very important to God. Over 300 references in the Bible, in the New Testament alone... Uh, talking about the end or the return of Christ, 216 of the 260 chapters in the New Testament have a reference to the end or the return of Christ. The second reason it's important is is because Revelation is the only book of the Bible that begins and ends with a blessing to those who read and apply its contents. So you're just blessed by being here and listening tonight. That's good news. And the third reason, we cannot fully understand who Jesus is without the revelation. It's the revelation from Jesus, about Jesus. So it's a really, really important book for us to study. A quick recap. So last week we went through the first ten chapters. And and this is... um, This is not going to answer all of your questions. It's just going to give you a roadmap so when you're studying it for yourself this week, you go, oh, okay, he was talking about that. That makes more sense to me now. So I'm going to give you a quick recap in case you missed last week. I encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to last week's message, but I'll give you a quick recap of chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 1, Jesus tells John to write down everything that he sees and hears, so he does. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters... To seven churches that existed at that time in Asia Minor. And they're just letters of admonitions and encouragement to those churches. Chapter 4, John gets to see what heaven is like. He sees God on his throne. Everyone's worshiping him. Chapter 5, John sees that that God has this big scroll in his hand. And there's all these seals, seven seals on the scroll. And the only one who's found worthy to unroll the scroll is Jesus. Chapter 6, Jesus begins to break those seals. He breaks the first seal. And he sees what looks like, again, John's just, he's seeing this vision and he's putting it in language that only he knows. But he says it's like this white horse that comes down and its rider uh, likely represents peace. And it brings this three and a half year period of peace onto earth, which is led by the Antichrist. We're going to talk about that more tonight. Uh, The book of Daniel also references this. The second seal is broken and this red horse comes out and its rider represents war. and, And this rider is given power to cease peace Upon the earth, one of the reasons, again, we think the first horse is peace. The third seal is broken, and there's a black horse. That's representative of famine. If you remember, the rider is holding scales, and it says there's going to be great global famine uh, all over the earth. And then the fourth seal is broken as a pale horse. It's representative of death, and one-fourth of the earth's inhabitants die with this fourth seal. The fifth seal is broken. And we get a glimpse of heaven again. And everyone who died during the tribulation for following Jesus. So in the end times, the Antichrist is going to make it illegal to worship Jesus. And so there will be people that put their faith in Christ because they see some things that are happening and go, I think I... I remember going to a church service at Christian Life Austin. I heard something about this. I never put my faith in Jesus, but now I see this stuff's happening, so I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And because of that, they're martyred. They're killed for their faith. And so uh, John sees this in the fifth seal, and and these martyred saints are, are crying out to God, when are you going to avenge our blood? And the sixth seal is broken, and with the sixth seal... Uh, there's a great earthquake. The moon turns blood red. The sun turns black, and the stars begin to fall onto the sky, from the sky. Uh, chapter seven. It's kind of a, a review of what's happened before all this wrath has begun. There's 144,000 Jewish people who are sealed somehow by God on their foreheads, saying, "Protect these people. Don't let them go through the wrath." that everyone else is going through on earth. Chapters 8 and 9, we see the seventh seal is open. When it's open, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Everybody's just in awe of this seventh seal. And John sees these seven angels with seven trumpets. And they begin to blow their trumpets. And with every trumpet blast, another portion of God's wrath is poured upon the planet. So the first trumpet blows. There's a mixture of hail, blood, and fire hurled down. And it burns up a third of the earth. The second trumpet blast, and there's a mountain ablaze, and it hits the ocean, and it it kills a third of the sea. The third trumpet blast, a blazing star comes down to Earth. It hits the rivers and springs and contaminates a third of the water to where it becomes bitter, and people drink the water and they're killed by drinking the water. The fourth trumpet blast, a third of the sun goes black, a third of the moon goes black, a third of the stars go black, so it's getting very dark on planet Earth. The fifth blast happens, and a star or Satan comes down. And unlocks the abyss. The abyss is kind of like a dungeon for hell. And and when he does that, uh, John sees these demonic creatures that come out. He describes them. He says they look like locusts with the sting of a scorpion. And so for everyone who doesn't have that seal of God on their foreheads, they're stung for five continuous months. And they would long to die, but death will elude them. The sixth trumpet blasts and, and at the river Euphrates, Um, There's these four angels who are bound there, probably demonic angels, and they release this 200 million man army, and this army goes out and kills a third of the earth that's left. Many people have already died at this point. Uh, And then chapter 10 is where we wrapped up last week, and John sees this angel, he's got a little scroll, and he goes, what's that? He goes, oh, eat it. And so he, he eats the scroll, and he says, it tasted sweet like honey, but it made my stomach turn sour. And, and I talked about last week, I think that that's representative of the bigger scroll, that it's, it's sweet to Christians be like, oh, wow, we were right. We were on team Jesus, and we knew this was going to happen. But it's also very bitter, because we know people that we do life with, that we work with, that we live beside, who we didn't tell about Jesus Christ. They didn't accept the good news for themselves, maybe because we didn't tell them. And we know that they're going through this tribulation, and we could have stopped that for them. So there's all these things that are going on. I want to show you a timeline and you might get your phones out and take a picture of this. But it might help put things in perspective of, of how this is going to go down. So it starts with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so, so Jesus dies on earth for the sins of the whole world, for everybody in the room, because he loves you. And so he dies for your sins, and then the resurrection happens, and he comes out of the grave, and he appears to hundreds and hundreds of people, basically saying, listen, I'm not an apparition, I'm not a ghost, I'm not a figment of your imagination. It says he breathes on them, and he breaks bread with them, and he's back. So he appears to hundreds of people, and then he ascends, and he's enthroned on an everlasting throne at the right hand of God, and that's where he should be. And so we're here now in the church age. It's an undisclosed time. We don't know how long this church age is. The Bible calls it a mystery. And then I believe, I know there are some people that believe in a post-tribulation rapture. I believe, Pastor Rex believes, the rapture happens before the tribulation. So I just put the mark there. But the rapture happens. The saints of Jesus Christ, those who call him Lord, will be uh, lifted to heaven. And then the tribulation begins. So there's a seven-year period of tribulation. It's broken up into two sections, three-and-a-half-year periods. The first three-and-a-half-year period is that period of peace. Global peace, this never happened. You can imagine if somebody were to usher that in, the whole world would begin to follow this person. This is whom we term the Antichrist. And there's another three and a half year period, which is where all the the wrath happens, the the judgment, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, which we'll get to tonight. Um, At the same time, simultaneously, there's the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this, where those who put their faith in Jesus Christ because of things we've done on earth will be rewarded. That's pretty cool. So you put your faith in Jesus, and that determines where you'll spend eternity, only by faith and faith alone, not by works, so no one can boast. It's not about works. But you put your faith in Jesus, that determines where you spend eternity, and then what you do from that point forward determines how you'll spend eternity. There's a lot of verses that talk about that, but actually, when when you come to church and you share your faith and you read your word and you pray to God, all those things that you do in the name of Christ, those things will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. There's two judgments in heaven, that's the first one. Then the second coming of Christ happens and there's a millennial kingdom, a thousand years, we'll get to that tonight, and then the great white throne judgment, which is where everybody will go to heaven or to hell. So that's kind of a recap and kind of puts you in in perspective. So tonight we're going to look at chapters 11 through 22 as quick as we can. And again, this is just an overview. I want to give you some more confidence about this book's contents. Let's just dive into chapter 11, beginning in verse 3. It says, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Okay, now what is 1260 days? I'll help you out. It's three and a half years. The reason it's three and a half years is the Hebrew calendar only has 360 days in it. So this is a three and a half year period. Remember we talked about the seven year period broken up into two three and a half year segments. I think this is in the second three and a half year period. Makes sense to me that that's when that takes place. And these two witnesses are telling the world about God. There are many scholars that believe the 144,000 Jews who put their faith in Jesus in the last days that they're led to Christ by these two witnesses. Maybe, we don't know, that's a possibility. Look at verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Okay, so these guys aren't normal. Uh, (laughs) You try to harm them, they go Super Mario Brothers on you, fireball in your face. Like they do, I don't know, it's pretty intimidating. And John's just describing what he sees, but he goes, you know, fire is coming out of their mouths. like, right, like just toasty, right? So, who are these two people? Who are these two witnesses? Are they people that we know? Maybe, possibly, we're not sure. Some scholars believe that they are Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses seemed to be the the most common answer for who these two men could be. Elijah did some pretty spectacular things when he called down fire from heaven in 2 Kings 1, and he burned a hundred soldiers and two captains that were coming to arrest him. And then if you read on to 1 Kings 18, he was uh, on top of Mount Carmel, and he was going against the prophets of Baal, and he called fire from heaven, and it consumed his offering. So Elijah has some supernatural ability, specifically with fire and Moses has supernatural abilities for that matter as well. But here's the clincher on this hypothesis. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes his disciples up on a high mountain, and he's transfigured before them. So they get to see Jesus in the glorified state, which is pretty cool. But the other thing that happens is there are two other people from the past that show up on that mountain, Elijah and Moses. So possibly these two men are the two witnesses. Uh, It could be them. It could also be Elijah and Enoch. Uh, I like that theory because Elijah and Enoch are the only two men in the Bible who never died. Elijah never died, according to Second Kings two. Enoch never died, according to Genesis five. That's a possibility as well. It could be, Pastor Brad. We really don't know who <laughs> these witnesses are, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got like tickled in my office looking at this picture earlier <laughs> fire breathing brad <laughs> right who knows uh, look at verse 7 now when they finish their testimony the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them so satan is given power to kill these two witnesses after a while they've harmed a lot of people and now satan's given power to kill them their bodies will lie in the public square of this great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which is where the Lord was crucified. It's talking about Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So the world gets so arrogant that, look, we killed these two prophets, and they don't like these prophets because they oppose the Antichrist when the Antichrist is actually the one that's evil. And so they kill the two prophets, and then they're so celebratory that they start exchanging gifts. Here, have some fruitcake, right? They just start exchanging gifts because they're so excited. The witnesses are dead. Now, I said last week that every generation since Jesus has has thought they were the end times generation. Everybody has. And we're no different. We think Jesus is going to come in our lifetime. But let me give you just a, a reason on why we could be the end times generation. Okay, Because there's some uniqueness about our generation that hasn't happened in generations before us. We're the first generation to have worldwide satellite technology. This is important to the end times narrative. Because again, Revelation 11.9 says, For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, Language and nation will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. So think about this logically. This couldn't even happen 50 years ago. Because the the technology wasn't in place. So we have now satellite technology where you could be here and see something that's happening there. Just something to think about. Uh, Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Okay? So after three and a half days, everybody's glowing, they're high and we've killed the witnesses. Breath comes back in their lungs, they stand up, everybody's like, give me my fruitcake back. Right? And they go back to heaven, and, and uh, their enemies look on. Look at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Yeah. So with the seventh trumpet blast is the return of Christ. Now chapters 12 and 13 are interesting because we get to see a picture of what Satan is doing during all of this tribulation. We get to see what Satan is up to, and to understand chapter 12, there's a lot of... uh, symbolism and figurative language but there's three characters that you need to know about and it talks about them and you know what these people are based on context throughout the passage but there's three characters the first is the woman which is representative of the nation of Israel the second is the son which is representative of Jesus and the last one is the dragon which is representative of Satan so the woman is Israel the son is Jesus and the dragon is Satan again you get that from the context clues there's just a lot of symbolism in chapter 12 look at verse 5 She, who she, Israel, gave birth to a son, who's the son? Jesus, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Verse 6 The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay, so remember, Revelation chapter 7, there's 144,000 Jewish people from Israel, that they're sealed somehow by God. So she, somehow God just takes her away and protects her, protects Israel. She's not going to be harmed while the rest of the world is going through this wrath. Verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So there it is. The dragon is Satan. Who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So there's this war in heaven, and Satan loses to the Archangel Michael and is thrown down to earth along with all of the angels who are following Satan. Look at verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. So now John sees Satan, he's standing on the seashore, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So since this beast is coming out of the ocean. This beast is whom we have termed the Antichrist. Now, again, I said this last week, we think of the Antichrist as a very evil, villainous person, but he's going to be a very popular person. I'm assuming it's a, he's going to be a very popular person. Um, he, he's he's uh, maybe bilingual or trilingual because he has to affect the whole world, influence the whole world. And so here comes this Antichrist and, um He's going to set up this one-world government. He's going to, first of all, usher in this period of peace, which would get people to follow him. And then he's going to usher in a one-world government with one-world currency and a one-world religion. That's who we're talking about. It's all led by the Antichrist. Look at uh, verse 5. The beast, or the Antichrist, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. What's 42 months? Three and a half years. There we go again. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So here's a guy who's obviously against God, yet he becomes a world ruler. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So all these nations are following him, but not only the nations, look at verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, this is a different person, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So this is whom we have termed the false prophet. So it's almost like a false trinity. You have right the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the false trinity is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They have very similar powers, which is interesting. But this, this, um, this person doesn't have literal horns. I know that's kind of confusing, a lot of figurative language. But here's, here's the thought. Um, he says he looks like the lamb. Who's the lamb? But he sounds like the dragon. Who's the dragon? Yeah. So he looks looks good. But he's deceptive with his words. Okay? Look at verse 12. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So it talks about this a couple of times in Revelation. We're not real sure what that means when it says the fatal wound has been healed. But this Antichrist, there's going to be something that happens to him that should have killed him. And it's healed miraculously, and people start to follow him. So I don't know what that means. You you know people that have had near-death experiences, and they come back to life, and nobody's like, worthy. Nobody's worshiping them. So I think it's going to be something pretty far out there. I don't know if he gets his head cut off in battle and grows a new head. I don't know if it sounds far out there. But it's got to be something so bizarre that they say, worship him. And you go, yeah. And they begin to worship him so we don't know, and and, and you would say, well, how do you get people to worship a human being? This is how he does it. Look at verse 14. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform. Again, this is the false prophets. Given signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. Okay, so how does this false prophet get all these people to worship the antichrist well this false prophet is given some pretty supernatural powers and it says that he creates this image this statue and then he's able to give this statue life and so it begins to speak think about that you go down like downtown austin and and the stevie ray Vaughan statue starts talking to you and then he says worship stevie ray vaughn right you would go uh yeah i've never seen anything like that Right? So, so it, it's kind of like that And, and he calls fire, so He's doing all these supernatural things Miraculous signs And uh, someone that powerful You'd worship who he says to worship If you didn't know God Not only that, but the beast says Take the mark of the beast Or you cannot buy or sell goods And you know that we've been moving Towards a cashless society We have all these companies That are having these identity thefts and, and nobody carries cash anymore. Everybody has their credit cards or the debit cards. I've had my credit card compromised three times in the last three years where somebody steals my number and I have to get a new credit card. And you could see where somebody would say, hey, I've got an idea. A politician maybe would say, I've got a good idea. Let's implant some sort of a chip where you don't have a credit card, but you just, you know, I don't know how that works, but it says it's in your right hand or on your forehead. And that makes sense to me in a colder climate. Right, those are the most accessible points. I can take off my glove, or you know, go to Walmart, and beep. I don't know how that works. Scan my head, but you have to have the mark to buy and sell goods. And so, I, again, and this is this is. In order for this one world currency to happen, there has to be worldwide financial technology in place. Again, just making the case that we could be the end times generation. This was on July 25th of this last year. The New York Times posted this, an article that microchip implants for employees. Can I tell you that to scare you? I'm just saying the technology is here. This is the New York Times saying we have the technology. We do it with dogs already. You can put a chip in a dog and I can tell you what its name is and what address and what kind of food it likes to eat. Right, So you could see where somebody would say, this is a good idea, we could put it in their hands, nobody can steal your hand, and you could just scan your hand when you pay at the pump. So that makes sense to me, and and so um, we're going to be taking this mark, we're not, but the world will be. And then it says that there's this 666, it says that this Antichrist, calculate his number, and there have been a lot of people that have tried to figure out who the Antichrist is, Uh, there was a big movement towards Rockefeller, if you take... Uh, if A equals six and B equals twelve and C equals eighteen and so on, that the word Rockefeller is six 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 or something. Somebody figured out Bill Gates. I have my own calculations, my own studies. If you take six 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 and convert it to Arabic values, you would get these numbers: one hundred five five fifty five hundred one five. And then if you extract from them, that adds up to six six six. You extract from them the Roman numerals, you'd get this. Roman Roman numeral, C-V-V-L-D-I-V, and then if you take the V and convert it to a U, you can make it to say, cute purple dinosaur, I think Barney is the Antichrist. (laughs) Come on, somebody. That song, I love you, that is from hell. That song is awful. (laughs) my point is nobody knows okay so if somebody says hey this is the antichrist like we don't know you could you could you could give me time and i could figure out how i could make that 666 so just be aware it's going to be somebody who's very popular somebody who's (laughs) likable we don't know but it's going to be somebody who, who the whole world gravitates towards all right chapter 14 verse 1 and then i looked and there before me was the lamb standing on mount zion And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Who's the lamb again? Jesus. So he sees Jesus. He's on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a literal place right outside of Jerusalem. There's the 144,000 who came to faith, Jewish people who came to faith in those last days. They're with him. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people, he said in a loud voice, fear God. And give him glory, because the honor of his judge, hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine. Of her adulteries. The first angel says worship your true God. The second angel comes along and says Babylon has fallen. Babylon is just another name for this antichrist world kingdom that has been set up. Uh, It's referred to as Babylon the Great. It says that the antichrist kingdom is over. It's done. It's God's turn to reign. Look at verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image. And receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand. They too will drink. The wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Listen, this is one of the reasons we're doing this series. Pastor and I firmly believe that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. There's some really smart people that believe there's a post-tribulation rapture, which means we might be here for the tribulation. And scripture says that if we take the mark, we burn. So this is important for us to know. I hope we're gone. If you have faith in Christ, I hope you and I are out of here. But you need to know this. Because I can see where the enemy, he's crafty, he's a father of lies, he's a great deceiver, he's going to say, well, you got to feed your family. I mean, God would want you to be happy, and if your family is going to starve, you, you can't buy or sell goods unless you have this mark, so you should take the mark so you can buy and, Oh, God will understand. No. You've got to get this. Like, we cannot take the mark. And if I have to endure torment, if I have to put my family through torment for a day or an hour or for weeks or for months or for years, I'm not taking the mark. I'm not taking the mark. We can't take it. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last, because with them God's wrath is complete. So he says, I see these last plagues that are happening, so there's all this wrath, and now there's these seven bowls that are going to come out. There's the seven seals, the seven trumpets, now it's the seven bowls, and these seem to, I don't know, but they seem to happen pretty quick in succession, maybe in a few minutes. It just all starts pouring out on the planet. Let's uh, read these, uh, verse, verse 2, chapter 16. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Isn't that sad? That all this is happening and all they have to do is say, Jesus, please take me into your kingdom. And they refuse, they just curse him. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So John says that there's a sixth angel, and remember the Euphrates River, and, and that's where this 200 million man army comes out and kills a third of the world. Some scholars believe this is the same event, um, I kind of think it's two different events, but it doesn't really matter. It's, the, these, these spirits come out and go to all the nations, and they gather them for this final global battle. We read about it in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. So, you've heard that before, Armageddon. This is a literal place. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. Napoleon called this the greatest battleground on all the earth. It's this beautiful valley, huge valley, and all these people come out for some sort of war. We don't know why they're fighting. They may be fighting against Israel, they might be fighting against each other. All we know is in the midst of this great war, Jesus shows up and everybody starts fighting against Jesus. And God at that point just says, I'm done. I'm done. And he just starts to wipe out everybody. I'm killing everybody who doesn't have faith in my son. And so that's actually talked about in chapter 14, but it says that this angel takes this sickle, you know what a sickle is, you know, that has the big blade on the top, and just begins slicing people. And it says that the it's a bloodbath. It's it's gruesome to read about, but it says that the blood flows for two hundred miles. From here to Dallas, just yeah, as high as a horse's bridle. Just blood flowing. All these people are slaughtered who try to fight against God. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nation collapsed. That's the way it all ends. Chapter 17, verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. So in the midst of all this, John gets to see what happens to the great prostitute, which again is is a reference to this Antichrist kingdom. We know that because look at verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So Babylon the Great is this antichrist global kingdom. It's the one world kingdom, the one world currency, the one world religion. And he calls it the great prostitute. Why would it be a great prostitute? Well, think about this. All throughout the Bible, the church is called the what? The bride of Christ. So you and I are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom is coming back for us. Amen. So we're the bride of Christ. And here you have this one world religion that's trying to lure you away. Come over here. Come over here. We cannot entertain her because she will fall. Look at verse 8 of chapter 18. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So how long? to get this massive, global, worldwide system. How long does it take for her to fall? A day. One day it's over. After the destruction of everything, look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In the end, he hears this screaming, this shouting. It sounds like thunder, and they're just praising God. It's now God's time to reign. The rest of the chapter talks about Christ reigning. Let's just read it. This is verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but uh, he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So we have this picture of Jesus, and he's coming victorious, his robes dipped in blood from the, from the slaughtering that just occurred. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Come on! So Christ return, returned. He's here on the earth. And it says that, that he is bound, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Remember... Uh, that we talked about that Satan had the key to the abyss. Well, now Satan is thrown into that abyss for a thousand years where he can't do anything to mankind, can't tempt us, can't deceive us. Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received their mar- its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. It's awesome. It's awesome. I believe this is the literal thousand years. Um, when, I, when, I, when I study the Bible, this is a great tip for you as you're studying the Bible. If the literal makes sense, speak no other sense. I try to allegorize something that may not be there. That's what a lot of people get into trouble with with this book. They read something in there that's not supposed to be there. I'm just a very simple guy. So I'm like, okay, what's the simple meaning that could be behind this? So When it says a thousand years, I'm going to trust the word of God that it's a thousand literal years. Satan's not doing anything. It's how the earth was intended to be. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle in number they are like sand on the seashore. So after a thousand years, I don't know why this all happens, it's all for the glory of God, but Satan is given a little breath of life and he goes out and he starts deceiving people again and he deceives so many people, he says, I can't even count them. Can you imagine a thousand years without Satan, his temptations or deceptions? We're just living with Jesus, and then he comes, and immediately people just start falling again, abandoning God. Verse 10 of chapter 20, And the devil who deceived them is finally thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the lake of fire is Satan's doom. It's where he's thrown. It's where the beast and false prophet are thrown. And this is where anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life. In other words, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. You'll also be there and you'll be tormented day and night. That's what the word says. Randy, if you'll help me. Chapter 21, two more chapters. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's it. After all this, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and John sees this, and there's just, it's perfection. There's no, there's no hunger, there's no thirst, there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no disease, there's no pain. We're with God to celebrate for all eternity. That's how the story ends. One more verse, chapter 22, actually 2, 10, and 11. It says, then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Yeah. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Thank you, Lord. What's he mean by that? He says, if you can read Revelation, chapters 1 to 22, and you get to the end of the book, And you go, "Eh, I'm going to keep living in my sin. There's no hope for you. If you can read that and listen to all the devastation and destruction and wrath that's going to be poured upon the planet, and it doesn't stir you to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. It's a scary verse because it says, There's no hope for you. I don't want you to miss this church. More than anything in the world, I want you to put your faith in Jesus Christ tonight. Because listen, it's as easy. It's as easy, and it's difficult. It's just calling on His name. Scripture says in Romans ten nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Acts sixteen thirty one says something similar: believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, through believing in Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. It's not about anything you did. If you came in tonight thinking your good works we're going to get you into heaven, you're mistaken. That's what every other, and I get why you think that, because that's what everybody else says. That's what every other religion, but that's a scary proposition. Like, what's the pass-fail scale? 51 percent, 70 percent like at school? what gets me and I just try my best and hope in the end it's enough Jesus said it's not by works you can't boast in anything you've done only what I've done for you through the cross of Jesus Christ when he died for you when he died for your sins the penalty's been paid yes. the debt's atoned for all you have to do is put your faith in him yeah. ask him to be your savior live as if he's your lord and you will be saved You have nothing to fear here. Revelation is not a scary book. It's a celebratory book for us tonight. If you have faith in Christ, saying this is how we win. Listen, some of you may disagree with some of the things I've covered, and that's okay. I'm not dogmatic about any of this. I'm still learning. We all should be learning. But I hope that I've given you at least a road map that you can go and you can read it for yourself and somewhat understand what it's talking about. There's some difficult things in there, I understand that. But at the end of the day, we need to know that God wins. There's gonna be some awful judgment. And we should use that as the, propel, the propeller to go out and, and share our faith with those who don't know him. If this doesn't motivate you to tell people about him, I don't know what to tell you. Like That's what Revelation does for me. That's why I love this book so much. I can read this book, and it makes me want to go and evangelize and proselytize to somebody who doesn't know about Jesus. Say, listen, I love you. That's a really good way to do it, by the way. I love you. And I don't know what what you believe uh, in regards to Jesus and all that, but I'd be a really bad friend if I believed that the possibility of abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven existed And I never told you about it. I wouldn't be a very good friend. And listen, whether you ever accept it or don't accept it doesn't change how I feel about you. I love you. But because I love you, I need to tell you something. And I just tell them about the gospel. And when I use that out of love, not out of judgment or condemnation, when I do that, it's amazing. I've never had anybody reject me and go, I hate you. Because I'm doing it out of a place of love. Not everybody accepts it. But at least my conscience is clear in concerning that person because I said, I told you. And listen, we can't make those things happen anyway. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it's God who makes things grow. It's not up to us to save them, just to tell them. Just to tell them. And so there's, there's two invitations tonight. The first invitation is for those of you who would say, you know what, I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ, right? Like if it happened tonight, If the rapture, just like in that video, if we're all just hanging out in the foyer after service and people start getting lifted, I don't know that I'm getting off the ground. I want to settle that tonight. You can. You can leave here a different person than what you were when you came in. You can leave here saved tonight. It can happen for you. Let's just deal with that first one first. I want want to pray. Let's all stand together. I want to pray for us. And I would love for, we did this last week, and it's okay. It's okay to repeat this prayer. But for those in the room who might be a little timid and don't want to be the only one praying on their road, let's just all pray this together. We're just going to accept Jesus Christ into our hearts and say, I want you to come into my life, Jesus, start me over, make me new with you. All right, so let's pray together. Father, I believe that you sent your Son, Jesus, to earth to die for me for my sins. I believe that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And I'm asking him to come into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. Forgive me of my sins, past, present, and future, and start me over as a new creation in you. Jesus name just tell him you love him just praise him right there where you're at just thank him for salvation